You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Live Free Now show, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. We are really excited to be joined by a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Jeff Lawton. We're, uh, he's with Discovering Permaculture. He's done, done all sorts of incredible work bringing permaculture to many people, permaculture design. He hails from Australia, and he is going to be one of our featured speakers at the Exit and Build Land Summit. The Exit and Build Land Summit is coming up May 19th through the 21st. For those of you that are attending virtually, you can sign up absolutely for free to watch the first day and a half, exitandbuildlandsummit.com, exitandbuildlandsummit.com. But if you want to check out uh, Mr. Lawton's exclusive two-hour workshop, that'll be on Sunday. you got to have a virtual immersion pass. They're very affordably priced. They come with all sorts of bonuses. You get the replays of the events. We still have uh, room for folks to join us in person. So we'd love for people to join us in person for the event here in Bastrop, Texas. We've really assembled an all-star cast of speakers and presenters, but perhaps the most valuable piece is coming and networking with people and finding people to exit and build with, people to build community with. So we're really excited about um, talking to Mr. Jeff today about permaculture. Permaculture is a very powerful means of reconnecting with the land, of designing an ideal homestead. It even extends beyond just food production and land development, a holistic system that is in alignment with nature. There's so much that we have to learn from uh, the philosophy and the study of permaculture, permaculture design, and there's a whole lot we can learn from one of the living legends of permaculture, Mr. Jeff Lawton. So without further ado, let's bring up Mr. Lawton today. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm good. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, maybe you could start by introducing yourself and sharing with the audience how you first learned about permaculture, because I understand you've been on this permaculture train for quite some time. Yeah. Um, I first got introduced to permaculture in 1980, so uh, it's uh, quite a long time now. Um, and um, I was an immigrant into Australia from England, and um, I'd always uh, fancied the idea of having a self-sufficient lifestyle from the 70s, uh, 16 and 1970. So we had dreams of, of living the uh, alternative way, but um, it was always difficult. Um, it was seemed to be difficult. And then I came across this word um, when it was just starting, permaculture as a subject started to be taught in 1979. Um, I was kind of on the spot in 1980 and um, it was an inquiring word. And when I got involved, I realized it was a design science that gave you a, a kind of logical roadmap to um, move into a, a very sustainable lifestyle. And it made sense. It was something that I could see from an engineering point of view that it was just quite a simple process into a complex system, but it, it made it un understandable. And in concise nuggets, you could move towards a sustainable lifestyle. And uh, I got involved very early, uh, pre-internet, of course. Hmm. And then since then, the information age has happened and um, it's all taken off. Um, it took me eight years to um, teach after taking my design certificate course. Um, I spent 
eight years um, as a practitioner and a uh, uh, consultant. I started off assisting um, one of the local consultants who was quite famous in my area, uh, the designer of the first permaculture eco village, Crystal Waters. His name was Max Lindegger. I was very fortunate to be in, on a spot where I could I could learn from one of the experts of the time and now a legend. Um, and then I went on my own consultancy path, learned a lot. And eventually, 1991, I started teaching. And um, I realized that um, I got a good result. My, you can only judge your teaching by what your students do and if they go into action and ultimately if they become teachers themselves. Um, I was very lucky also to be close by to uh, Bill Mollison, the founder. He was my teacher and he moved from Tasmania in the south of Australia to pretty close to where I lived. I lived in uh, southeast Queensland. He lived in northern New South Wales, where I now live. And um, I started a, a closer relationship with Bill, took on project work overseas, and it just kept going from there. Um, I kept getting a good result with my students, a good result with my projects. And um, I ended up um, working directly with Bill at the Institute, managing the Institute in Australia, and eventually setting my own Institute up. And uh, it's just gone on and on. It keeps going. I've, I've been working very hard up for my redundancy, really. I've been working to produce students who are better teachers than me, better con designers and consultants and project establishment systems. Um, so we've set up multiple charities, not-for-profits in America, 5013Cs. Uh, right now we're setting up a, uh, a permaculture, uh, local permaculture group startup kit. So anywhere across America in a local government area, we can give you a startup kit to get going and get your local community um, set up so that you know how to, how to interact together had a region modern mapping of bioregions and um, had to uh, assemble species and technologies that will make life easier. That's That's been our mission all the way, is to help people with information exchange. Starting with education, everyone's got to realise that you're going to go through a paradigm shift, um, more or less giving you an alternative to the present system. And then how we build that as a massive information network, because... Uh, there's an infinite amount of information that you can get involved with to be sustainable, but a very simple approach, and it is simple, and it's not hard. Uh, once you sort of realise that there's just concise ways you work with natural systems, and then you can, you can add as much diversity as you like. But the basics, pretty simple. Right on. Cool. I appreciate that. And it has been a long journey for you. You said, were you an engineer before or you were interested in self-sufficiency before you learned about permaculture? Yeah, because I, I was 16 in 1970. The dreams were in the early days that there was an alternative counterculture. And it was the first time like the, the younger people of the world kind of rejected what was happening. Um, and, and that hasn't changed, I don't think. Um, but I was a mechanical engineer. Um, I always thought I was going to be a teacher, didn't think I was up to it, but I've, I've disproved that um, because I've had very great success with my students. Um, and having an engineering background kind of 
allows you to figure out the the basic practicalities of things and you'll find there are a lot of engineers in permaculture um some very famous permaculture teachers like rob and michelle avis in in calgary uh in canada ex-oil and gas engineers um ramis kent from from um oakland california um and, and quite a few others but there are some other traits like architects are attracted to permaculture because obviously architecture is mostly a folly and architects should be paid for the minimum energy that houses consume and the minimum amount of embodied energy over their lifetime um, so it, it's an energy audit like so many things are an energy audit uh, sustainability is 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 an energy audit really um, any any sustainable system produces more energy than it consumes enough to um, construct maintain and replace a system's components parts over their lifetime it's simply that so you have to look at things from how much energy goes in how much energy comes out and to achieve that you have to link to sunlight and living systems through photosynthesis that's all we are we're, we're just solar collectors through the food we consume um and and it all links back to the sun through photosynthesis um like so much does even our diet it, specifically our diet harvests a lot of glucose um and uh, if we manage our glucose our diet relationship to our body changes a lot um and that's really photosynthesis collecting basic starches and sugars um and when we refine those they're kind of a bit out of control <laughs> when we eat whole food they're a little bit more balanced um, and that's becoming a little bit more obvious today with science monitoring you know we have great science there's nothing wrong with science it's it's not got a lot of ethics um science doesn't have much ethics at all but when we apply ethical design to and science um we get great results um, so um we've never been in a better position uh, to improve everything we do and uh, we've got the information age we've got appropriate technologies and science if uh, ethics is applied over science then uh, we can do this fast um so um the great thing is that we we can source information we can talk to each other like this across the planet in lifetime and it makes a big difference yeah it's pretty incredible it's a big game game changer to be able to communicate and one thing i've found is like time and time again good science proves out a lot of the spiritual thinking and a lot of that which we observe which that that which comes natural to us it ends up being proven out through science whenever the science catches up with nature uh if you're just joining us we're joined by jeff lawton uh, he is going to be presenting at the Exit and Build Land Summit, May 18th to the 22nd. Check out ExitandBuildLandSummit.com. Really honored to be hearing from him. He's going to do a workshop, teach us about sustainability practices, and then take some questions and answers from the audience. Now, in your first answer there, you brought up the word sustainability multiple times. And I think you kind of threw out how you would define that having to do with energy. Can you share again, just specifically, how would you define sustainability and why do you think it's something so important that we all work towards? Well, initially it's a word that's bandied around so much and uh, most people can't define it in one sentence. So if somebody's lecturing you or, or talking about sustainability and they keep bringing up the word, you need to ask them if they can define it in one sentence because like so many things in its basic most concise 
definition it's quite simple it's an energy audit right that's really what it is uh, a sustainable system produces more energy than it consumes um, now to do that you have to link to natural systems because the only source of main source of permanent energy is the sun and if the sun goes out we've got another problem you won't be worried about too much about sustainability if the sun suddenly switches off or dies down so you know while the sun continues to shine we don't have to worry about sustainability with an ethical design science approach so starting off with a sustainable system produces more energy than it consumes you have to then go on and explain uh, enough in surplus to maintain or at least construct maintain and replace that system over its lifetime now if it sort of scares you that we're using the word lifetime on a system because systems should be permanent natural systems are permanent they do change they do speciate they do evolve but they stay constant so living systems that's why there's so much life out there on the planet so if you want to make it a little bit less scary right let's extend that and say a sustainable system produces more energy than it consumes enough in surplus to construct maintain and replace that system's component parts over their lifetimes all all living systems have a lifetime all living components have a lifetime and most built components have a lifetime now any, anything that you build you need to look at particularly the energy of construction over its lifetime that's how you how you gauge its sustainability with living systems are there are they are they elements that self-replicate and replace themselves so all, all living systems can be constructed of elements that take up their useful positions, develop a system, evolve a system that gets to a climax where it self-replicates. And you then become the manager. Initially, you're the, you're the designer. <laughs> you're an assessor, possibly before a designer. You assess whether it's an ethical system you want to help design. Then you design it then you direct the implementation and that's pretty straightforward the implementation and then there's the establishment phase it can take a year or two or a few years depending which climate you're in and which landscape and how damaged it is when you start so then your your system establishment can show you quite a few evolutions that might not have been obvious initially and then once the system's established and it's very stable and it gets to a kind of uh, climax point where most of the living elements if not all the living elements are in maturity and they're in balance by then then you can just work out the long-term permanent management so over time the human component exponentially drops off You've, the human component is very large at, at the design phase and the implementation phase and then it slows down to a long-term establishment where you're continuing to very carefully and passively observe the natural responses of your system's setup, let's say establishment setup. You know, you're going to see variations of interactions, uh, good and bad, and neutral. 
and then you're going to choose the, the the more efficient and better ones and then eventually you're at a point where it's kind of hit a, a, a climax balance equilibrium and then your assessment is what do i need to do what's the minimum i need to do now to keep this system just ticking along and, and at that point your you know, human involvement is very small as long as you keep to the positive interaction um you've got a lot of time on your hands and your system's doing most of the work for you um this is this is what we teach that's what you need to to learn so the advantages of the present time compared to the past because there have been reasonably sustainable systems in the past is that now we have at least 800 times more living elements in diversity than we've had before there's 800 times more food plants than you ever had before in all climates because we've moved plants around to favor production to favor our needs um, there's species from all over the planet in our food gardens in our product um, systems not just food the systems we use for all our other needs that are living elements our, te our technology is improved so we have appropriate technology it's it's very energy efficient and we have the connection of information our information exchanges is enormous i mean ai is going past google by the look of it in the speed of response so um I'm, i think it's extremely positive and the only way we can it looks like we can get this done is we the people have to do it for ourselves it doesn't look like many governments are moving very quickly in this direction um they're stuck in the old paradigm mm. and, and and more and more people are expecting a paradigm shift once they um get some degree of education and information about how you apply uh, a scientific approach to design um, one of the main things that people say is wow I didn't realize I was going to be completely seeing the world in a different way and I was going to be thinking through design eyes. I'm never, I'm never going to be able to see the world the same way. The way I see the world now is extremely positive on one side and the other side is I can see the extreme damage that's still going on and I'm just going to move to the positive side and set an example. And enough, I think if enough of us do this, um, we, we create a tipping point. And if uh, Malcolm, Greg, Malcolm Gladwell wrote the great book, Tipping Point, um, where from his research, he found that 11 to 18 percent uh, created a tipping point. So if 11 to 18 percent of humanity experiences that paradigm shift and starts to move in this direction, um, it all becomes a permaculture pandemic. That's kind of infectious and um, terminally infectious. There's no recovery. We go into a positive mode of action and possibly change the way we think completely. I mean, we get a sort of, um, if you look at neuroscience, uh, we may change the, um, we, we may change the, the, the synapse in our brain to, to function slightly differently, like, um, there's some neuroscience that looks at when we started to read um, 
read and read, write and use numbers to describe the world, our brain kind of changed a bit, maybe like morphed a fraction or created an extra little branching pattern style. I think what happens with this paradigm shift is we kind of change the way our brain functions. And in a strange way, you become kind of a, a diverse academic, hmm. an academic that's a, a generalist. You, you start to study all kinds of things you didn't know before. You, you kind of want to know how plumbing works and you want to know how alternative energy works and you want to know how alternative building works and, and animal systems, plant systems, fungi systems, soil systems. You, you kind of, you're not a specialist, a reductionist thinker anymore. You're, you're, you're a extensive thinker and, and, and you really get a, um, um, you get a, a, a stimuli from that. You get stimulated from um, this sudden ability to retain relevant knowledge to um, sustainable design. And uh, a lot of people uh, um, experience that. They'll, they'll say, wow, you know, I, I was no good at school. You know, I wasn't academic, you know, really. Um, but suddenly I can retain all these names and numbers and, and I, I can start to understand basic practicalities of um, what I need to know to to live this way. Um, and that's interesting. I find that really interesting. Yeah, for sure. I think you're blowing some minds here with, with this, uh, how it's just a holistic approach to not only shaping, uh, well, not even shaping the environment, it's coming back into alignment with the environment. You know, um, so many people try to shape the environment to just the ends of human beings, not um, understanding that everything needs to be harmonious. But I really appreciate the optimistic perspective. And, you know, when it comes to the environment, there's a lot of there's a lot of centralized institutions. The United Nations comes to mind, big governments, big NGOs, and they act as though they're trying to save the planet. But really, they just want to centralize power, uh, get more money for their big nonprofits. Right. And ultimately, it's about control, in my in my view, what a lot of this uh, Agenda 21, a lot of this United Nations effort for environmentalism. But I appreciate how you put it pretty simply and succinctly. It's up to each and every one of us to understand these principles and to implement these principles. That's what this whole exit and build thing is about. We don't need to look to politicians, governments, big corporations to save the world. We exit these systems that we disagree with that aren't in alignment with our values, and we build new ones. And every time I hear some politician going on about environmental controls through more regulation, I just think permaculture is the way. And I appreciate that you're permeating these ideas, the, the permaculture pandemic. <laughs> so we're, we're glad that uh, that you're going to be speaking to our audience because that'll definitely help to spread spread that pandemic. I appreciate the optimism that you have as well. Uh, you've brought up ethics many times, too. Are you talking about permaculture ethics when you say that, an ethical system? Well, yeah, um, permaculture is an ethical design science. You have to have ethics before you start because science is often sociopathic. It engages in processes that might actually destroy all life on Earth. Um, we see it with weaponry, of course, but we see it with genetic engineering. And even before GMO was a commonly recognised term, um, we were splicing genes together and in fact, in California, we potentially nearly diminished a great part of the world's reign because uh, in the 1980s, uh, we gene spliced Pseudomonas syringae, a, a cloud seeding bacteria that's on all green material. 
um, to not be spiky and accumulate ice nuclei. So there is this little tiny bacteria that's on most green, almost all green, green leafy material, and it blows off into the atmosphere and creates oh, half of the world's rain at least. Uh, for, for it to rain, rain has to accumulate around small particles in the atmosphere, up in the stratosphere, really. And um, a lot of it's um, salt crystals off the ocean. But then as soon as you get inland, it's this little bacteria um, that's in the middle of every raindrop, and it's called Pseudomonas syringi. Syringi in Latin means spiky, like a syringe. And, and it seems to be purpose-built, like a lot of things in nature, um, to... Uh, to gather ice nuclei around it, and then as the ice gets heavier, it falls and then melts on the way down, and that's a raindrop. So when it was proposed that we genetically engineer Pseudomonas syringi to have bumps instead of spikes, um, the intention was to spray that living genetically engineered organism onto strawberries in California to stop frost damage because it's the same organism that causes frost damage on frost-sensitive plants like strawberries. Luckily, the scientific community of the world rose up without even most general public even knowing it happened. And so you can't do this. If this, this organism goes airborne, which it easily could, and aerosol into the atmosphere, we could get it breathing everywhere and lose half the world's rain. Um, if that had happened we might not be sitting here so it was stopped um but many things have happened like that since and luckily they've been stopped uh you know soil organisms have been genetically engineered to produce alcohol as a byproduct on crop waste that potentially could stop all vegetation on earth uh, because um all plants uh are totally sensitive to alcohol in the soil and it is a complete plant poison so if the you know if you suddenly mutate a soil organism that starts to produce alcohol as a byproduct of breaking down organic matter <laughs> you could have huge dead zones coming up around the world and if, if that organism went aerosol because farmers were plowing fields and it was going up in the air it'd be coming up everywhere and that's really dangerous things to be playing around with just for the sake of making quick money um now there's all sorts of things in science that we, we we need to be responsible for so with traditional people who did who weren't oversupplied with scientific uh technology uh, they had to set they had to have systems that went on indefinitely otherwise they wouldn't have been traditional people and you, all your people that were um mobile and weren't in settled settlements they were they were bedouin people and tribal people that continuously moved they had to have cycles that didn't damage the landscape they had to get up and move before landscape was too damaged so they could return um when when people started to settle they had to have systems that would fertilize uh, around the settlements and keep the soil fertile um, there wasn't the technology we have today to bring in more and more um, artificial elements, um, you know, like uh, synthetic fertilizers. All that started originally in the 19, uh, 1850s. Uh, before that, and, and during that period, the transition went to 
artificial fertilizers and thin, synthetic soil additives that we're all involved in today and now biocides and all kinds of you know, strange chemicals that we apply into our food chain through our soils. Um, before that, we had to have systems that partnered with living systems. And a lot of it was initially um, partnering with plants that fertilize the soil, mostly beans, <laughs> Mr. Bean, the beans and peas uh, fixed nitrogen and allowed us to, to, to settle really our cities um, and not destroy the soil around our, uh, our, our settlements and our cities. But we lost that. Uh, we, you know, that's a big, big difference. And, and you know, it, once we got into the chemistry of soluble fertilizers, we just kept going along that line. Now there's a big turnaround. You know, regenerative farming now looks at soil life, and we're starting to just starting to understand soil life. But if we look at ecosystems, that's what keeps ecosystems sustainable. Um, it's really a continuously fertile soil. Um, and we need to emulate that. And uh, ethics, ethics control our actions. So it's very important to have ethics. And, and we can look at our actions and very quickly assess whether they're ethical. So when you look at the actions of corporations, actually when you look at the actions of governments, and you look at the actions of the major aid organisations, like the UN, I work as a UN consultant on quite a few jobs, and I've been funded to do all kinds of things through the UN, refugee camps um, and um, through the UNHCR, uh, United, you know, the, um, the UNDP, the development program, uh, UNEP, the emergency aid. Um, I've just recently, I'm, I'm trying to set up uh, a permaculture demonstration site in a university in Jordan, um, but it's so slow. And it's so bureaucratic and, and it's so frustrating. Um, you could say that all of those entities, governments, corporations, and the major United Nations aid programs are, are probably a reason for aid to be needed. Hmm. That then they sort of perpetuate the need for aid. Mm -hmm. Aid should be redundant. Aid could be redundant. Right now, it shouldn't be an expanding industry. There's no reason for that, none at all. Um, we can set people up with systems that can, so they can look after themselves very well. Um, but um, all of those systems consume so much energy and so much mm. time and are, are full of so much bureaucracy. They, they need to be, they're a self-perpetuating system itself. <laughs> mm -hmm. They know about, you know, setting up systems that, that means that they're, they're actually required. The, the, the way we're encouraged to live means we're dependent mm. on, on those, those entities and we don't need to be. We can be dependent to ourselves very easily. Um, so we can, we can diminish the need for centralised systems. We can diminish the need for centralised energy, um, gross national product. And, and definitely, we don't need aid at all. We, we can do it ourselves. Um, permaculture as a, as a design science um, rejected centralization. And um, 
the, the system was copyrighted by the founder and given to the college of graduates. So everybody who takes a permaculture design course is a co-owner of the word. So hundreds of thousands, if not millions of graduates now are, are co-owners of the word permaculture and protect its ethics. And so we, we, we are now larger on the ground in the United Nations in numbers and probably a lot more effective because we don't have those centralized bodies to, to keep feeding back into, you know, they have to keep the central office and all minor offices funded before they fund the people they're supposed to be helping on the ground. Mm -hmm. But we, we just fund ourselves, <laughs> you know, we're continuously self-funded. That does encourage some donations coming in. That does encourage people to donate, you know, donate and, and some smaller entities to fund us. But, um, People need to realize this. They, they, we can move on our own very quickly. And, and the internet really helps us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people have given up their power and they look towards external sources. That's why there's so much infatuation with politicians because a lot of human beings were never raised in a way to feel empowered. Rather the opposite. They were raised to feel as though they're victims of some sort. Um, a lot of people in our audience are skeptical of big institutions like the United Nations, uh, but I'm grateful that there's good people like you sharing these ideas through those institutions. And I think one of the key differences, I mean, it's a, a family that comes to mind is the Rockefeller family. And you talked about monocropping and introducing chemical fertilizers and pesticides into food systems. And it was like the Rockefeller Foundation that pushed for this whole green revolution that really instituted uh, monocropping worldwide. And it was also the Rockefellers that played a key role in petrochemicals being introduced into the medical system as well. And now we see people that are eating terrible food, getting sick, and then they're getting terrible pharmaceuticals and it create, perpetuates this cycle of harm. Um, and one thing that came to mind when you were sharing about your role and, and the work that you've done with the United Nations is I feel like permaculture is, is more about a relaxing of constraints. And a lot of these governments, corporations, and the United Nations, they want to add controls and constraints, whereas permaculture seeks to just go with the natural flow of things. Does that make sense? Are you in agreement with that? Yeah, yeah. It's continuously evolving and always will be. It's an infinite journey. Nobody will know everything about permaculture ever. You know, it's, you know you, once you have this paradigm shift, I have to keep using that word because that's, something I realized just recently in the last 12 months from my students, you know, there, there are, there are people out there that are training corporate, um, people in the corporate world to accept that they're, they're, go they're going to be going through a paradigm shift with the technology that's changing around us. And, and I realized that that's what has happened to a lot of my students. So I think, you know, we need to we need to use that word that you're going to be you're going to be going through a paradigm shift. Ex expect it, and then realize that your your journey is it will never be complete. It'll always be evolving. Natural systems are always evolving, and um, our systems are continuously evolving. So you know, um, in any location, you will evolve systems that are specific to the landscape, the landscape profiles, and the local climate. Now, 
the the subjects that we cover um, are, are you know concepts and themes of design why we need particular concepts and themes to direct design application and then the methods of of applying design but then very crucial is understanding natural patterns pattern understanding it's it's an imprecise science because there are no perfect patterns out there in the universe but there is a continuous set of repeated natural harmonic patterns that we need to work with when we when we battle natural systems and force patterns that are unnatural um, that don't naturally occur in size and scale and form so when when we start to apply natural patterns our systems harvest more energy retain more energy they become more efficient energy storages so they become a lot more resilient uh, this subject um, pattern understanding it is missing from normal academics um, it, it's sometimes included in the sort of esoteric world you know the sort of woo-woo world of metaphysics where nothing's really provable um, but it's believable possibly but it's not provable we try and stay out of the metaphysics which I'm, I'm fine with belief systems are fine but we 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 stay within the provable sciences because we can we can rationalize and legitimize all the design that we apply or we, we should be able to um we try and teach our, our students say look stay within provable science you know rationalize and legitimize every every element you put into a design so um once you understand that there are patterns around us everywhere that that we can we can work with and they come in orders of scale of size from from the largest one can imagine in the stellar galaxies right down to the microorganisms there are repeated pattern forms and and it's not that many it's, it's not endless there's enough to be very interesting but it's not endless anybody could come to a, a general understanding of of the patterning of systems then everything changes and then once you've you've gone through that realization the first thing you need to do is have a a good understanding of climate and the climatic factors. Now, when I say this, I'm, I'm not talking about climate change. I'm not talking about engineering the clouds with jet streams or any of that. I'm talking about what are the standard climate understandings? Most of us don't understand the climate as well. We, we talk about climate every single day. It's raining outside here in Australia. You know, people are going to be talking about it when they get up, you know. But I'm talking about like when should it be raining? What time of temperature should there be? What what are that our general climate understandings? Can you can you get an understanding of the difference between a, a tropical climate and a desert climate and a cold climate or the edge climate to the Mediterranean or the edge climate to the subtropics? Can you really like understand those? Once you get that, you say, oh, I need to be clear because otherwise I'm not in focus. I need to know what climate I'm in. You know. You're, you're, you're in Texas. I don't know how far from the coast you are. Climate analogues relate to what latitude are you at? How far from the equator? What altitude are you at? How high above sea level? 
or low if you're below sea level, not many places are. Every 100 meters you go up in the air, every 300 feet you go up in the air is like one latitude away from the equator in, in, in climate variation, but day length doesn't change. And what does that mean? Like what, what, what does that, what, how does that affect my system? Because it will. Um, so you, you've got latitude, altitude, distance from an ocean. Those are your first climate analogs. Everybody, everybody needs to know those. Every school child in every school should know what their school climate analog is. And then they need to know which places around the world are similar or, or very much the same. And you could then look at other countries that have different traditions and cultures and say, oh, well, they're the same climate analog. You know, wow. Do, do you know that you, you're, <laughs> I happen to know that a lot of Texas is the same as Kazakhstan, hmm. Central Asia. <laughs> and, and as a designer, you, 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 you get to do climate analogs of all the places. Once you know climate analogs, then you can start to work out the ecosystems, which major in trees, that, that adjust the water cycles where you live. Because it's only the energy transactions between the ecosystems, which are majorly trees, trees, ecosystems major in canopy trees. What are they? What could they be if you adjusted climate analogs that are similar around the world to your location? How does that interact with the climate? And it very much adjusts the water cycle. Okay. So once we start to adjust the water cycle, we need to learn about water and everything we can do with water because water is definitely a major element. Like the first thing we look at is what's the potential of water on your site. Without water, there's not a lot of life, right? There's no planets out there without water that have got life. You can bet that. If you're looking for a, a planet out in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the universe, it better be a blue one if you want life on there. Um, so water is a major um consideration and then once you have that then you can start to understand soils because with with you know climate understanding ecosystem interactions and transactions understanding you've got soil creation and once you have soil creation you've gone a long way down the track and now you can ethically Engage in earthworks, which is the shaping of the soil so that you can harvest more water, grow better ecosystems, and you start to snowball towards a more positive landscape, and you've got more opportunities. And by then, you're completely addicted to the process. You're terminally infected, and on you go, and you're infecting everybody else you talk to, and they want to know how the hell you did what you did. Uh -huh. like how did you green that Texas desert? You know, How did you get that little bit of green happening right there? And you're running on very little outside energy and you're using less energy all the time um that's what we're driving for it's it's a it's a very interesting chess game it's more complex than chess and a lot more interesting right on and it's a paradigm shifter paradigm shift um <laughs> do you think that cities as we know them today are one of these unnatural patterns that that defy the permaculture ethics, a major city with a population of 100,000 plus, 500,000? Yeah, uh, in their present form, they're a bit like a cancer if you look at patterns. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like a tumor that keeps growing. Um, and um, we have to come back down to villages. And one of the ways, there's a lot of redesign to do, there's a lot of retrofits to do. So there's actually no unemployment out there. Um, 
there's you know we could all be employed that's for sure and there's as much work in retrofit and redesign as there is in new design and villages need to be assembled into um, clusters of villages really we know that you can't um, you can't recognize um, faces of more than 150 people on a daily basis there, there are actually um, industry leaders out there um, that know this in their in the number of people they put together in a factory for efficiency you can recognize about 150 faces on a daily basis after that somebody's a stranger um, and there's more and more strangers all the time so you go into major cities <laughs> get the public transport systems in any of the major cities of the world and you're surrounded by strangers aren't you um, and on a daily basis um, that's not the most efficient way for us to to work and it's not the most empathetic way to work um if we if we want to work in a system where you know we're caring for the earth and we're caring for people and we're returning unnecessary amounts of accumulated surplus and some of the one percent of the wealthy won't like that statement um if we're returning unnecessary surplus to extra people care and extra earth care we're caring for the world's environments we're increasing natural systems diversity and efficiency um, we're stabilizing climate we're stabilizing soils we're, we're, we're cleaning up our water systems we're creating uh, a global abundance and that is caring for people but then people just need caring for as well we all have to go through life's dramas and tragedies and for that to be really empathetic it comes from people you recognize on a daily basis um, well it's much nicer when it's everybody you recognize um, we all go through you know uh, and births deaths marriages and and, and dramas and, and we need cultural interactions from from our local communities now that's a major redesign but we can do it um, and if we want to be really efficient on our food supply um, most of our extremely diverse valuable food can be grown in urban agriculture and then perimeter urban agri agriculture what surrounds a, a, a population and then at a distance we can um, we can still have rangeland and forestry so there's some very interesting figures on this because our present food system is extremely inefficient. We grow massive amounts of singular crops at great distance, at great energy inputs, and then great energy transport costs and, and great amounts of soil wastage, uh, soil wastage, but also food wastage. A lot of food gets destroyed or, or, or wasted in transport get into the end end user so if we grow if we change the system and we stop growing food at massive distances in very unnatural monoculture simplistic systems and we move it all into our human habitat into our cities into our villages into our towns and surround our towns with our main crops on the appropriate landscape that's not too steep or not too difficult. And then at, around that, we put rangeland and forestry. We can supply all the needs of humanity 
on four to 6% of the present equivalent area used. So if we go nutrition now and go, okay, what's the amount of land used to provide the present nutrition? And we look at the nutritional quality of food grown in a diverse system close to people, it's enormously more efficient because we specialized in growing low nutrition. We specialized in producing unnatural food that's got very low nutrition and incredibly en enormous energy cost. So when you start to put food very close to people, it will run on our own waste systems. It will run on our own water systems, our own runoff systems from our cities. You know, Los Angeles runs off 55% of the volume of water it imports from, from the Rio Grande. You know, read the book by Fred Pierce, When the Rivers Run Dry. He, 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 he puts, gives you all the figures of the inefficiency of modern water. We move water right across landscapes, hundreds and hundreds of miles, and then waste it all. We'll waste at least 55% in Los Angeles' case, which is the same amount of water that could be caught on the hardware of Los Angeles. And then we concrete the LA River and run it into the ocean. Like, what, we're supposed to be good engineers? That's nuts. You know, we can do that on all, all, you know, all our hardware runoff of our cities could be going towards growing systems. We can clean it up naturally with natural biological cleaning systems. We can clean up all our waste with natural biological cleaning systems. Um, and everybody can do this on a local level. I happen to live in a area here in Australia. It's a very alternative area, Lismore Shire. Anyone wants to look up Lismore Shire Council website, you'll see that rural dwellings like this one have to have a grey water reed bed. This house has a grey and black water reed bed. All, all the runoff from this house in grey water, shower, kitchen, wash water, wash machine water, and toilet water has to go through a biological reed bed. Otherwise, it's illegal to live in the rural landscape of this, this area of Australia. It's enforced, right? You have to have it. Um, we're not a third world country. This is, this is a first world country. It's, it's got a very high tech, you know, lifestyle. And, and, um, but it's an alternative area and, and um, our local university has proved it. And now it's, it's illegal not to have a grey water reed. But well, that's, just a, that's just an engineered wetland in a, in a concrete box. That's all that really is. We put them in all the time on our projects around the third world because in the developing world, third world, the underdeveloped world, the never-to-be-developed world, the two-thirds world when it comes to population. They're the under-regulated world. There's no regulations much in the, in the developing countries. But in the overdeveloped world, which America is the epitome of it, and California is probably the ultimate over-regulated world, there's restrictions on everything. There's almost restrictions on breathing, you know. There's restrictions on rainwater. I mean, the rainwater is falling out of the sky. <laughs> we, we only drink rainwater here. And in, 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 in rural Australia, we only drink rainwater. I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. I mean, if you can't drink the rainwater, I'd consider regulating how you breathe. Mm. You know, you might have to put a, a, a you know, a, uh, oxygen tank on your back or something. If you can't drink your rainwater, you shouldn't breathe the air. Um, people don't seem to realise um, 
it seems that the more developed people get, usually the more afraid they get. The more they get information which makes them afraid of nature. Uh, when nature is our biggest friend, our biggest asset, our biggest partner, and does most of the work for us when we're good designers. That's what you get to realize after a while. I'm not doing most of the work. I'm doing most of the design, and I'm doing most of the observation and adjustment, but I'm not doing most of the work. The natural system's doing the work. I've just facilitated that to happen. I've facilitated a life-rich environment which favours the elements that I need, the, the human requirements. I've, I've favoured my food supply and my my um, materials and my fibres. You know, I've favoured systems for the animals I want to keep or the wildlife I would like to have around me. I, I've favoured systems towards my requirements. And I've done that by design and application and then careful observation of what happens as, as I establish a system. And there's, there's a million, billion new ideas coming up all the time. Internet sharing is massive. It is massive. I'm, I'm even in microscope clubs where we're discovering new soil elements that are improving production all the time there's people sharing videos of their of their compost microbes out there on facebook um, which is great i mean it's, there's there's wonderful things happening we can all be very optimistic if enough of us shift we need to hit that tipping point we need to be the new pandemic <laughs> we are the new indigenous we might be the only indigenous now with a new in global nation of indigenous permaculture thinkers. Um, and um, you don't have to call it permaculture if you don't want to, but we're all going to be thinking the same way if we're going to survive. And um, there's, a, there's a wonderful future in front of us um, if, if, if we keep going this way. Um, we just need to hurry up, really. We've been saying that for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm very optimistic about things like AI. Mind you, I'm optimistic about a lot of things because I live in a paradise, you know. Um, and I, I've created a paradise. I'm quite happy to come home and be made redundant. I don't mind coming back here. Um, instead, I keep at 68 years old. I don't know how long I can keep going, but I keep accepting international in, invitations to help people get going. And um, I'm helping some of my younger students now set up institutes worldwide. I've just come back from Hungary where we've got a great institute in establishment. And that's a continental climate, like a lot of the Midwest of America, the, you know, the Northern States, Minnesota, Wisconsin, sort of thing. hot summer, cold winter, continental climate at a latitude 47, um, climate analog, we could work that out. Um, you're you're in Texas, so you're down a bit lower. You know, you're in you you, you are, I can't remember what your um, latitude is, but that, this is how we track down um, systems. How you start to analyze where you are, what exactly your climate analog is, then apply design to the landscape um, profiles you have. Are you in hilly country? Are you in flat country? You know, all these sort of things, and we can break it down and take you through this process. And um, then we can even design what sort of house works best and, you know, what sort of energy systems work best and waste systems and all that stuff. People are kind of surprised we design toilets as well as gardens. And, 
solar systems and house design to be more efficient, all that sort of thing. And then as you get going, you can get into local economics and, and you can get into local systems. I'm interested in the fact you have 19,000 uh, local government areas in North America. We have 473 in Australia. It's your local politician that allow that allows you, uh, your, your local laws are set up by your local politicians in your local government areas. And, and there's our first point of influence. And I, I work with Pearl River Eco Designs, student of mine there in Pearl River, uh, Mississippi, near the Louisiana border, Ben Missima. And we work with LIDAR maps and permaculture, um, permaculture designed LIDAR. So LIDAR is one of those technologies that is satellite mapping, sees through the trees. It's why we keep finding all these ancient cities under giant rainforests and things we're finding all kinds of features because of LIDAR. We've applied LIDAR with permaculture adaptions to design. And that is a revolution. That is amazing. It's only happened in the last few years that we've evolved wetness maps and um, slope maps and ruggedness maps and shade and sun maps on top of LIDAR accuracy. And we can see one foot contours or less. We can see everything using this technology and we can design right across the world, but we can design whole bioregions. We can design for a whole community and, and, and we can explain to a community, it's almost like we can translate the, the design system of permaculture across a community landscape. So everybody can get a translation of the system into their local area. This is so valuable. It's such a valuable system. I advise everybody to look up, you know, Pearl River Eco Design and the work of Ben Missima. Um, I work very closely with Ben, but so do a lot of other uh, well-known um, permaculture designers right across America. Um, and we're trying to train people up to do more of it. Uh, we need those LIDAR uh, designers right across the planet, really, um, because it, it allows us to see right into landscape profiles and, and water flows. You can put, we, we, we put algorithms over the maps to show you where the water flows when it floods, where the water sits when it's dry, where the dampness is in the landscape. This is all uh, technology that's out there that we can adjust to our, our mapping and design to make us really accurate, really, really accurate. Um, so, you know, wonderful technology to, to speed up the process. Um, we can get you on the ground fast now, so fast. Wow. Oh, man, this is absolutely incredible. I can go all day talking to you. Um, just a couple more things came up because I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, why are you optimistic about AI? What, what is it about artificial intelligence that, that makes you feel positive? Well, obviously, people think it might be influenced. You know, they obviously think, well, you know, it might be telling you false information. But... From what I can see, it, it's 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 exp exponentially expand, expanding very quickly, and on the negative side of things, it can just take people more towards the matrix to be sort of plugged into entertainment, plugged into information, and just sitting there looking at a screen. And the average person spends six hours, sixty hours a week looking at a screen, which is not going to get you out in the garden. 
and not going to get you out there understanding nature where the real stimuli is. It's false stimuli, a lot of what we get on the screen. So we're getting people arriving at our institutes who know everything, they know everything, or then think they can get it in a few seconds, but they can do very little. Their practical quality, their practical ability is dropping, but the information accessibility is expanding exponentially. But their, 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 their skills, their basic um, practical skills are diminishing. And, and with that comes a great concern because everybody's realizing, oh, you know, this isn't quite right. You know, I might be able to catch fish on a, on, on a smartphone with a, you know, fishing app, but I can't actually catch fish in a river or a, or a, or a lake or the ocean, etc. But the other thing is that, you know, over the years, I started teaching before the Internet. It became obvious that while I'm teaching, students in front of me are looking things up on the on the internet. So Google, basically Google, became the reference point for everything. Right? But you still have to look it up, right? Then you have a choice of stuff. What's happened very quickly in the last year is different AIs come online that gives you information really quickly, extremely rapidly. And most people are writing articles with an AI checker and and, and everything else. And, and really, we're all if we're all on a smartphone, we're already connected cyboids, really. I mean, we're already connected online. Everywhere you look, most people are looking at a phone more than they're looking at the landscape. But what it gives us is speed of information. So it's very interesting. We've already playing around with it. And, and you can ask AA quite contentious questions, like what's the benefit of in, invasive species, which is a question people are all fixated with. A lot of people are worried about hardworking immigrant plants or hardworking immigrant um, living elements. Um, maybe they're worried about hardworking immigrant people as well, but not necessarily. Um, and AI gives you a pretty honest answer. Uh, it, it's an answer I quite like. Uh, you have a choice to accept the answers of AI, um, but the competitive nature of people and the competitive nature of um, the internet world, I mean, you wouldn't be talking to me if it wasn't the internet because you, you, what you've done is you've seen my social media and you've seen my websites i mean websites wouldn't do it alone now it's social media you've seen my youtube you've seen my facebook and you've seen my instagram uh, we have permanent staff employed to do that well <laughs> uh, there's a backlog there's about two weeks worth of videos coming through still in the editing suite and there always is because my mission is to try and give you good information so the reason you're talking to me is because of that um, and AI is making that, is improving that, right? So I think the speed of reference now, I mean, it's literally going to make a lot of institutions redundant. Um, a, a lot of low quality information is going to be redundant. A lot of junk is going to be redundant. A lot of educational institutions, which are really backward anyway, I mean, the efficiency of universities, the efficiency of schools, they're, they're terrible. I mean, most people study for years but don't actually get employed in what they study. And they get a university degree or a master's or a doctorate but don't end up working in that field. 
Um, but when you look at online education, like our online education in permaculture allows me to teach 10, worth, 10 years worth of students every course. So I'm like 100 years in front in five years, <laughs> 10 years, you know. I'm teaching so many more people with more information options than I can face-to-face. -face. It's just not physically possible to teach the amount of information that I can offer on an online course with high-quality video, high-quality information references, options that people can download so quickly. That's all positive, and I think AI can just add to that. It can add to the speed of reference to get this stuff done well. Of course it looks like an enemy. So did Facebook, so did Instagram, so did the internet at all, so did websites. But they've all become part of our daily life. I don't think you have a choice. It's going to happen. It's happening right now. It's obvious. Okay, let's get into it. Let's turn that tool around to be a valuable tool and not a weapon because you're not going to avoid it. That's the nature of the world as it's been in my lifetime. Um, okay. Let's see what we can use it for, for the greater good. And I think it's already been used that way. Mm. And yet in the background, one of my <laughs> one of my teams out there just come out of the stable and he's walking, uh, you know, through the paddock in the rain in a wet. He's actually from Argentina. Um, and... Uh, He's, uh, he's out there working because he loves it, right? Um, and yet it's a pouring rain out here. Um, and, um, yeah, he's getting his experience all right. Um, this is what we offer people. Worldwide, this is what we offer people. So, you know, people want to set up institutes that are education demonstration sites, bring it on. You know, uh, you want to set up local community groups where you can interact, interact with each other and share happy little accidents and sad little failures. Mostly that's what you do in community. You share, like, had this happy little accident happen, and really interesting. I found out that, you know, when you grow dog brain around citrus, the dog brain seems to help the citrus fruit, hmm. and especially young citrus. Everybody goes, what? What's that? Dog brain's a funny little smelly herb. It's insignificant. doesn't have many uses, but it grows like ground cover. Everybody try it. We all try it. Go, whoa, that helps citrus grow. What a strange thing. Okay. Uh, let's spread that around the permaculture groups of the world where they grow citrus. Everybody comes back and goes, oh, is that not citizen science? Who cares what's happening? Dog brain's cool. It's a natural element. It makes citrus go, why? We still don't know. No one's funded us to find out and wonder why. But who cares? I don't care at all. Dog brain doesn't care. Citrus obviously doesn't care. It's growing better. Those shared experiences... We can go with local community to extended communities within our climate analogues to a global connection. We have Permaculture Global. It, it, it's our, one of our websites. We've self-funded that. It's a ruby on rails like Facebook. You know, it, it's a, a massive global connectivity network website. It links projects and people worldwide. It's been sitting there for a while. Um, our new... Startup kit for community groups is going to be interacting through Permaculture Global. And we can set all this up to be tax deductible gift recipient donation systems, 5013Cs. You want a tax deduction 
for something you believe in or a legacy you'd like to leave, you can help fund these things. Why not? There we go. Wow. Um, so that gives you, you know, it's got drop down arrows for, you know, are you a consultant? Are you a teacher? Are you a project? You know, um, uh, it's got one page for uh, students, one, one page for projects, people on projects. Um, we've had trouble keeping it funded. We got it going before the world was ready. Um, every one of those markers there gives you the people in North America. You could zoom into Texas right there as you zoom in. Yeah, when you get to the red dots, you can click on a red dot um, or a blue dot. It might be now. Yeah, so click on a blue dot and that gives you uh, somebody and then click on them and their page comes up. Wow. It's a, it's a, yeah, there they are. Earth Song Retreat. Hi, Earth Song, whoever you are. Yeah, there's yeah. a road from us. Yeah. So you can find people close to who's following them, who do they follow. Um, there are icons on the right. You know, there are drop down arrows. Yeah, we can. People travel the world on this website. Hmm. They go from project to project right around the world and gain experience. I love um, it. And um, that's all in position, and that'll help us connect people. So we've got stuff sort of backed up before we're ready, um, and we give it away. We, we more or less, you know, we did that to help the world. Um, wow. Wow. So there's so much, so much we can do. <laughs> you want to get engaged, we can give you, give you stuff that will help you get going, that's for sure. Wow, you're absolutely crushing it. It's clear that you're extremely passionate about this. And uh, a lot of people just stop right there. They use new concepts, philosophies, systems to benefit their life. But I, I really appreciate that you have taken this knowledge and have absolutely exploded it and played a major role in, in spreading this critical information. Um, can you share? You So we got permacultureglobal.org, permacultureglobal.org. I understand you guys also operate a website, Discover Permaculture, and then uh, the Permaculture Research Institute as well. Can you just share about those and how folks can find those before we let you go? Yeah, well, Discover Permaculture is really my online education system and, and my social media, which are linked to Facebook page and Instagram page and YouTube, um, where we try and give away as much information as we can through you know, posts, photos, and videos. Um, and then we have uh, where I live, Zaytuna Farm. Um, so that's uh, where, where our physical institute is here. Um, then we have the Permaculture Research Institute, um, which is uh, a not-for-profit. Um, and um, that's where our aid work comes out of. Um, and um, then I have... Uh, so if you just go search Zaytuna Farm, um, that'll come up. Z-A-Y-T-U-N-A. -A. Um, and um, that's that's where I'm talking to you from right now. Excellent. And um, and um, then then we have um, the Permaculture Research Institute is is like a a, a global um page so uh that's um where we share information globally and we have posts going up all the time and um 
that's continuously run. It's a massive amount of information going back over the years. And, um, and, and then we have some of our projects like Green in the Desert in Jordan. So if you look at the Green in the Desert site, that's our, our work in the Middle East around the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, which is now um, 23 years old. Um, and, and we have uh, um, a system there that's been established for a, a very long time. Um, and uh, we have a lot of alternative buildings and, and um, a whole sort of unintentional permaculture village evolving around the local area um, in, in, in an area that's really poor. It's a, a, um, an old refugee village. Uh, almost at the lowest point on the planet a very difficult landscape but we've proven that in even a very very difficult landscape we can come up with a uh, a permaculture paradise it's like become an oasis from a very desolate site um, and um and that just encourages people that in more verdant abundant landscapes you can do it a lot of people say you know if you can do it there you can do it anywhere so that's yeah. why i concentrated on the dead sea valley and uh, I've been involved in there for a very long time. You kind of took away people's excuses, huh? You can, well, do, it, yeah. you can do it in your backyard. I, I started off my overseas work initially was in the Ecuadorian Amazon, where you know you can put in a paradise and it's hard to find it um, in amongst the lush rainforest. And then I had this idea that I should concentrate more on really barren landscapes and then. I, through aid work, I got offered a job in the Dead Sea Valley in, in 1999. And I arrived there in 1999 and I, I still haven't left. I've just come back from there now. I mean, it's an endlessly growing small desert eco village um, with all alternative buildings, straw bale, mud brick, solar power, uh, reed bed, grey water, date palm overstory food forest. Um, we have an Airbnb with eight bedrooms. We have an organic cafe and an organic traditional restaurant. Um, it, it's it's stunning what you can do in the developing countries um, um, when you fund it from the developed world. You know, it's very easy to develop with the finance of the developed world in the undeve undeveloped world because the, the, the variation is enormous, as it is in Hungary. You know, we're, we're working in Iraq, we're working in the Middle East on aid, and with that we fund work in the Middle East. Um, and Hungary is also very similar. Yeah. Wow. Look at the transformation. I've just taken the most recent photographs in the last week that will be going up there very soon. Um, so um, that's, yeah, that's, 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 work that we do to just set up people's hope <laughs> to increase people's hope. <laughs> um, yeah. We need that more. We need the, the radical optimism and the positivity because I think a lot of people spend too much time on the internet, like you were saying, and not enough time looking at the landscape and just the news cycle nowadays, globally here in the U S everybody's shooting each other and like kids are doing all this crazy stuff. And I think it's easy for people to get depressed and overwhelmed, but the more, you, time you spend in nature, the more time you spend getting your hands dirty, putting your fingers in the soil, growing plants, getting multiple generations together to do all this stuff too. It makes a world of difference for your quality of life and, and it makes a big difference for the future too. 
we, we've got a lot of people doing permaculture flips on ur urban properties, buying a, a property that's, you know, nothing special, an urban house, maybe even in a rundown area, mm -hmm. and then turn it into a permaculture urban paradise, doing a flip, a permaculture flip, putting everything that, that is alternative, you know, even redesign the house, open up the windows the right way, put a compost toilet in, put a reed bed grey water in, put a garden in, put beehives in, worm farms, you know, every, everything you can, right, and, and make it a self-sufficient, famous site through a, a blog and then turn it over to someone who wants it developed and then do it again. It's, wow. it's a flip. And then people are developing properties the same way, putting in mainframes, water access structures, good water harvesting, good rehydration, good water storage, good house site positions, really good access roads. And, and then turn it over and letting people finish the development. And now with our work in the Middle East and here, people are asking us to do uh, permaculture developments. So eco-villages, um, eco-communities, eco-hamlets, uh, uh, the inquiries coming in, and, and permaculture resorts. So it's very popular for people to put in um, now, the inquiry is all over the world, coming in from the Middle East everywhere. Saudi Arabia is clients are coming and saying, can you build that for me? Can you build... Uh, a straw bale building on the outside, mud brick inside, so you store the cool of the thermal mass. Can you put in solar systems, um, alternative waste systems, uh, a, a, a desert food forest as a resort so people come and have an experience. They put their toe in the water for a weekend. They have nothing but organic food grown locally or within the system. They experience what it's like to live in that kind of house and they go home and go, okay, I want one too. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not providing people with the experience enough. There's a whole business opportunity here. And I hope people are listening in America because you have massive variation of climate out there. Mm. You know, from Montana to Texas, you've got a bit of variation there. You know, right away from the Midwest to the East Coast to the West Coast, there's a variation of experience that people could engage in and there's a commercial opportunity to not only make it economically sustainable but also valuable to the world yeah i mean there's a lot of people that would like to do this but the missus says oh i'm not sure that i can live like that or you know i'm not sure that i could do my work or what would it be like to look after chickens that make compost and well if you want to come to Jordan, we got it all in front of you. Wow. Right? But that's a long way. You know, it could be just down the road. You could have one in every state at least. So well, look, here's the experience you could have, and this could be your life. And I can tell you, the children here, they do go online, like all kids, they go online. But it's quite easy to get them offline to go and look after baby goats or baby chickens or yeah. go and move animals around or, or, or pick fresh fruit. That's not hard to get children offline to go and do that. And it, people say here, this is the easiest place to parent they've ever lived. <laughs> we don't have to take kids like soccer mums to sports and things. We've got it all here. This is, this is a massive world to children. And, and little kids arrive here with their parents to stay for a period. And you see them flower. You, you see the children flower. You see them grow into good adults who understand things of value. They don't even realize what they're learning. They don't even realize it. They just absorb it. 
you know that's the best way to learn you know i often start a kid's tour where it's like okay the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go and cut some bamboo we've got 28 varieties of bamboo all clumping bamboos beautiful products we're going to cut some bamboo and we're all going to have a bamboo stick for the rest of the day that's our own you think kids don't want to do that in fact the parents usually say can i have one as well <laughs> you know and, and just silly little things can engage people in physical action you know that's not that academic we go and choose the right bamboo make a nice walking stick and i say you can only have one as high as you are so little mm -hmm. kids get one of the highest heads and dad can have one as high as he is and then we're all walking around with a stick all day it's just <laughs> Very simple thing, but they said, oh, that was the best part of the tour. We all got a stick, you know, <laughs> cut our own walking stick. And then we take the tops and we say, look, the goats eat the leaves. Look, we're all going to feed goats now. And on we go, like, you know, and that, now we're going to go and dig some potatoes up or we're going to go and pick some lettuce. Or I'm going to show you what edible hibiscus looks like, where you've probably never seen, you know, other funny things. It's all fun. If you're not having fun, you got the design wrong. If you're not having mm -hmm. fun, you got your life wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Excellent. <laughs> and if you don't know what you're reading, you don't know who you are. Because if you are what you eat, you better know what you're reading. If you are what you eat, which we used to say in the old hippie days, you are mm -hmm. what you eat, man. Right. Well, what is it that you're eating? What is that food you're eating? You know what it is? You can't recognize it? Don't eat it. If you don't, if you can't recognize what the food is you're eating, one quick rule is don't eat it if you don't know what it is and really you should know where it comes from and how it's grown then you start to discover there's a feedback you understand who you are who ah, oh, this is who i am <laughs> yeah the kids don't know what milk is they don't know where it comes from they're really shocked when i can milk a cow and say you want you want some i'll squirt it straight in your mouth <laughs> you know? oh it's warm you know I don't know how many students come to me and go, oh, the milk's gone off. It's got this thick stuff on the top. You say, yeah, that, that's cream. You know, uh -huh. it rises to the top. Cream rises to the top, oh, doesn't it? You didn't know that. It's like, oh. no. You know, it comes from a supermarket as far as you're concerned, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not just saying that. You know, eggs are warm when they come out of the back end of a chicken, and if you pick them up at the right time, they're still warm when you get them. You know, like, just need connections. It's connectivity. Permaculture is a connecting system between disciplines. It's more about connections than the disciplines. You need to understand it's the connections that we've lost. We need the connectivity back. You need, that's what you need to teach the kids. You don't get much connectivity from a screen. You can't smell a screen, right? <laughs> You know, you're losing one of your main senses straight away. You can't touch a screen. It's the same touch every time, although kids think that's touch, you know. <laughs> Swiping. That's not touch. Your yeah. senses, five senses. The kids need to understand the refineries of their senses. A concert pianist has 10,000 times more sensitivity in their fingerprint, fingertips because they're playing the piano so much. You know, a kid in a permaculture system touches, smells, listens, you know, and as well as sees, you know, and tastes. 
You know, you know if it's poisonous, you know if it tastes bad. There are five great tastes, you know, the bitters. We don't taste enough bitters. Hmm. You can hear birds. You know which bird it is. There's 15 different frogs in this site. Have a frog out. Now, the app's useful because the app tells me which frog it is when I hear it. I can <laughs> record it, and if I get a clear recording, that frog can go in the citizen science website that it appears here at Zaytuna Farm. Kids love that. We've got this yeah. frog. We've, Jeff, we heard that frog. What is it? You know, I recorded it. Okay, let's look it up. Oh, we've got a bad rocket frog, you know. Yeah. You I should, love it. Yeah, you, you want to entertain kids with the right stuff. Give them an option. Keep them online, but give them an option and get them back out there. Otherwise, we're going to lose it, and you're only going to have the matrix. And we've all yeah. seen that. Those apps are perfect, too. Uh, there's an app that you just put on a plant that identifies the plants. I'm impressed with my son because we have a 10-acre homestead, and um, we haven't done, like, full-on permaculture design, but we intend to. We have three people living there, so it's, a, it's an intentional community of sorts. And uh, my son, though, he's done these nature classes. It was called Natureversity. We go on little walks and hikes, and he's like, no, don't step on that. that that's a mulberry plant. And, or we're like mowing the lawn. We, we don't mow the whole lawn. We like to lot, let a lot of it be wild, but around the house at least. And he's like, that's a mulberry plant. Don't run over that. Those are actually pretty dang good. And there's like grape trees, speaking of bitter. Yeah, we're not used to bitter. Our society here in the West rejects bitter. But we have these grape trees, these vines, grape vines that grow just wild. Like, they're crazy. And you taste the grape. And I tell you what, it's about as bitter as it gets. Apparently, you can make wine with them too. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things as far as permaculture activism goes is making sure that we instill these ethics and this awareness and this holistic systems knowledge in the next generation. That's probably the most impactful thing that we could do. So yeah. I appreciate you bringing you, that up. You, you, could, you could Google a mulberry and see where it originates. You know, you could Google a mulberry and look up uses. You can make dalmadis out of mulberry leaves like you can grape leaves, etc. cetera. Um, but you could probably ask, ask AI and get it in two or three seconds. It kind of Googles <laughs> for you, you know. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You know, we can use it. You know, we can use it and, and, and then we can engage in what we need to know out there that we don't want to lose. So you, you'll find that, you know, I didn't know one Latin name in 1983 when I took my design course with Bill. I just thought he was a freak. I mean, how can he remember all that stuff? And then I realized, yeah, it's just engagement. You know, I probably have 500 Latin names that are all a weird list of usable things. It's not all roses. It's not all orchids. It's not all one species, one variety of tree like eucalypts or something, which some botanists just know one thing. It's this great big mix of stuff. Um, that's valuable and um, yeah and you can help people locally with that with with that engagement you have some fantastic permaculture consultants in america eric tones myers work up in holyoke massachusetts incredible incredible he's at now a a, a, a lecturer at yale university on agroforestry he's a plant maven you know you, you have people all over the country the work of warren brush in aid from uh, upper Cuyama Valley in, in California. You, you have a lot of lot of good people there connecting up. You have a, you have a plant network. Um, you have Eric Tonsmeyer and J Dave Jackie wrote uh, Edible Forest Gardens, a two-book series. Um, yeah, 
there's practitioners everywhere. Um, the English have an incredible social network in permaculture. They have a fantastic um, organization all through Great Britain. Um, we're networked everywhere. Yep. And it's just growing, exponentially growing. Because you, you can teach a permaculture course once you've taken a permaculture course. Mm. I and love there's it. Thousands and thousands of courses happening today. And, and next year, there'll be millions probably. It's just exponential. And you know how that works. Exponential function goes fast towards this, you know, towards the climax. So the permaculture if, singularity. Hopefully we get to a climax. That's all I'm interested in. Then I can just come back home and stay here. Yeah. <laughs> You're redundant now. Okay. All right. Well, hey, I really appreciate it. you've spent a lot of time with us. And I got to say, I'm extremely grateful. This has been, uh, you definitely renewed my passion for permaculture through this conversation. I'm really excited to hear what you have to share at the Exit and Build Land Summit. And I want to thank you again for agreeing to speak to us. I think people are very much looking forward to it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you. All right. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you on Sunday. Thank you so much there, Mr. Lawton. Keep up the good work. You're doing amazing things. Thank you. You too. All right. All right. Thank you. All righty. Wow. Oh my goodness. What a blessing. I didn't know we were going to go for this long, but that was ah, like mind blown multiple times over incredible, incredible information. And the cool thing is like, it seems so profound, but really it's just getting back. It's getting back to, to nature. Um, human beings lost our way, but there's incredible people in this world that are helping us to return to the land and return to a better way of living. Not only a better way of relating to the, the planet, but a better way of relating to one another. And these permaculture ethics, uh, care of the people, care of the earth, return of the unnecessary surplus, which I appreciate uh, Jeff put it that way. Now Nowadays, it's like fair share. People try to say fair share, but no, it's return of the surplus back into these systems, back to the original ethics, the other two ethics. Uh, it really is going to change the world, and it's critical that we instill these values and these ethics in the future generations. So I really want to invite you out. If you've loved what Mr. Lawton had to say today, he's going to be spending two hours with us on Sunday of the Exit and Build Land Summit 3. It's all about exiting the cities, building community in the country, uh, regenerative agriculture, intentional community, eco-villages. You are going to be blown away. If you're somebody that's felt some obstacles, uh, you, have a, you have a desire to live a life that's more in alignment with your values, surrounded by people that care about freedom, care about bodily autonomy, care about permaculture, uh, then you owe it to yourself to take part in this event. Again, it's the Excellent Build Land Summit 3. You can sign up to watch the first day and a half absolutely for free, no cost whatsoever. All you got to do is share your email. We'll get you all the links to be able to watch the first day and a half. Sign up at ExitAndBuildLandSummit.com, ExitAndBuildLandSummit.com. There are still tickets to join us in person. If you come in person on day one and day five, the 18th and the 22nd, you get to go on these incredible tours of all these farms doing regenerative agriculture and permaculture principles. Each day there's a lunch that'll be provided with food from those farms. And then during the actual conference, we're sourcing a lot of the food from local farms as well. So you'll be able to eat some of the food from the farms that you toured on day one and day five. Uh, but again, you can join us for free online. You can join us in person. But if you want to check out the two-hour session taking place on Sunday, the 21st, uh, you got to get a virtual immersion pass that gets you all the replays, very reasonably priced. You get all sorts of bonuses, and you definitely will not be disappointed. Again, the website is exitandbuildlandsummit.com, 
exitandbuildlandsummit.com. It's going down May 18th to the 22nd. I hope you'll join us and I hope you'll take this stuff seriously because it really is uh, changing the world. Like, wow. And it's, it, it, I don't know, I'm just blown away by it. It seems like it's some complex thing and these systems are complex, but the simplicity of it all, once you can understand the permaculture ethics and, and the importance of this design, these design principles really makes a world of difference in your life. And, and I appreciate the like pushing these ideas outward, not just to designing a piece of land or food production, but a holistic approach towards all of the systems, whether it's health, communication, internet technology, or most importantly, how we relate to one another. There's definitely a whole lot to be garnered from from permaculture and who better to explain it to us than Jeff Lawton himself. So thank you so much everybody for joining us. It's been an absolute privilege to share this information and to bring Mr. Lawton uh, to this program, Live Free Now show. I hope you'll really consider joining us at the Exit and Build Land Summit. Again, the website's exitandbuildlandsummit.com. Thank you so much everybody, bye.